Well, uh, a good job is really hard to find these days. Uh, I don't know if you know that, but uh, especially in this digital world, like where job postings and resume submissions and even like interviews happen almost all online now. Every bit of it happens online. Uh, so in today's world, like when you submit your resume, uh, there is a computer that does a, a keyword search within your resume uh, to decide if, if you have some of the necessary qualifications that the employer is looking for. And if your resume doesn't have those keywords, well, your resume just gets dumped into the great abyss of the employer's uh, email trash, never to be seen or heard from again. Uh, it's just gone. Uh, so for this reason, uh, people constantly exaggerate just a little bit you know, what uh, their qualifications are uh, for a given position. So uh, for example, someone who uh, pumps gas might call themselves a petroleum transfer engineer. <laughs> Or someone who works at McDonald's might call themselves uh, the money manager for a multi-billion dollar company. Uh, they, they're taking, taking cash for your Happy Meal. Uh, so uh, if your resume is a little thin, you have to do all that you can to, to kind of beef it up, thicken it up a little bit, uh, make it look as good as you can and hope for the best. Well, as we come to Galatians and think about uh, what Paul is doing in the first uh, two chapters of the book of Galatians, uh, Paul didn't need to beef up his resume at all, right? Uh, his qualifications and his authority were absolutely beyond compare. Uh, but Paul found himself in a battle with these uh, Galatian uh, readers of his uh, for their allegiance, for their trust uh, against these Judaizers who had come in after Paul and corrupted the gospel. And if we think of these Galatians uh, like employers, uh, think of them as having two candidates in front of them, right? Uh, one is the Judaizers. Uh, these are the legalists, the, the Jews who are insisting that you have to keep the law and circumcision, uh, circumcision and keep the gospel, uh, have faith in Christ as well. Uh, so these Judaizers, they're steeped in, in centuries of, of the traditions of the law and the, and the traditions of Moses. And they also were dressed for success, right? In their long robes and their long tassels, they really looked the part. They looked religious. They looked very impressive. And they waxed eloquently about the necessity and the virtue of keeping the law. Uh, and I'm sure it sounded really good to the Galatians. And the other candidate is Paul. He's, he's just by himself. He doesn't have all the people, the numbers behind him that the Galatians did. And although the Galatians had met him before when he came and did ministry and formed the church there, He's the new kid on the block in terms of the long-standing traditions, right? The gospel is relatively new compared to these centuries of, of laws and traditions that, Paul, that uh, the Judaizers preached. And then there's their appearance, right? The Judaizers, as I said, dressed in robes and long tassels. Uh, but Paul, uh, he said, or it was said of him, that he was physically unimpressive and his speech was contemptible, right? He wrote that about himself in 2 Corinthians 10. He dressed in ragged old robes and... He was scarred from the wounds of his enemy. So, you know, if you're, if you're doing a job interview and you're looking at Paul and you're looking at the Judaizers, well, you know, Paul's probably a long shot to get this job just based on appearance alone. But Paul had two huge advantages, didn't he? One was that he had direct revelation from Jesus Christ. He personally revealed himself to Paul and he gave Paul a mission. And the other is that Paul had already spent time with the Galatians. So they knew him. They knew his character. They knew his calling. They knew his testimony. But Paul was up against these formidable foes. Uh, these Judaizers looked good and they sounded good. And what we see in the first two chapters of Galatians is simply Paul just 
reminding the Galatians of his testimony, showing them that his qualifications were better than the Judaizers. He's got a, a better source of revelation. He's got a, a personal call from Jesus. And by the time uh, Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians, he's got years of ministry experience preaching the gospel where, wherever the Holy Spirit led him. So last week, when we looked at verses 1 through 10, uh, we looked at Paul uh, restating the gospel, telling them what the gospel is. Not what the Judaizers said it was, but what Paul said the gospel was. And then Paul rebuked the, the Galatians uh, because they were allowing themselves to be turned away from the true gospel that Paul preached to this false gospel that the Judaizers had brought in. And then Paul challenged these Galatians, uh, confirming that he was not trying to please men, but trying to please God. And so now over the next three weeks, we're going to have three sermons uh, just developing this theme of Paul's authority uh, as we complete chapter one and then chapter two over the next couple of weeks. So this week, we're going to talk about uh, Paul's knowledge and his authority. Uh, we'll talk about how Paul's knowledge was received by revelation. That's this week. Uh, and then next week, we'll talk about how Paul's authority was recognized by the church. That's uh, verses 2 through 10, uh, 1 through 10 next week. And then in the third week of this uh, little mini-series within the series, talking about Paul's authority, Paul demonstrates his authority by rebuking Peter. That's the end of uh, chapter 2. Uh, so that's where we're going in the next three weeks. Here's our outline for today. Uh, for today, we see uh, that Christ received his revelation from Jesus Christ and that he proved his authority by his training and ministry. That's verses 13 through 24. So if you're all with me so far, then we're ready to dive into the scriptures, uh, verses 11 and 12. Uh, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it from or through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, these first two chapters are just Paul convincing these Galatians uh, that they should listen to him and not listen to to the Judaizers because he had better authority. So right out of the gate, Paul establishes his authority to preach this gospel, that it came directly from Jesus. Now you'll remember last week in verses 1 and 2, Paul had already said this before, right? He said, uh, Paul, an apostle, sent uh, not by man or through the agency of man, but sent by Jesus and God the Father. And then verses 3 to 11, after verses 1 and 2, they're a pause. They're a little pause in this topic, this theme of Paul's authority. Uh, In those verses, he, he criticized the false teachers and their false teaching, and he condemned them both. And then he rebuked the Galatians for so easily and so quickly deserting uh, Jesus who gave the true gospel. And now in verse 11, Paul picks up again on this theme of authority. He was sent by Jesus with a commission and a message from Jesus. Now, when you and I were saved, it was a little bit different, right? Uh, When you and I heard the gospel, it was because someone else told us the gospel, right? Another person told us the gospel. God did a work in our hearts, and then we believed. The gospel that we heard came from the apostles and then was passed down through 20 centuries of word of mouth handed down until we believed it and we were saved. Well, Paul Paul didn't hear the gospel like that, right? There were no intermediaries with Paul. Paul heard the gospel directly from Jesus Christ. And so direct revelation from Jesus Christ would look pretty strong on a resume, right? Those are pretty good qualifications. 
Uh, in contrast, these Judaizers, well, they developed their own religion. They had this idea that you had to have faith in Christ on the one hand, but you still had to, you had to do the law. You had to keep the law and all the rituals. And so that was their idea that they should mix law with the gospel of grace that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead and that by faith in him, we can be saved. So the Judaizers made that up. They didn't have the authority that Paul had. And when you think about it, uh, Paul's receiving this gospel message, it really could only have come from Jesus because the Jews, you know, they would not have taught this gospel to Paul. And Paul was a Jew through and through, right? This, this gospel that Paul preached would never have come through these rule-keeping Jews. They were, they were claiming faith in Jesus on the one hand, but they were consumed with keeping the law on the other hand. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is, is faith alone, uh, in Christ alone. That is how we are saved. And they were trying to be saved through performance as well. So Paul never would have gotten this gospel that he preached from these Judaizers. And on the other hand, he would never have gotten this, this uh, gospel that he preached from Christians either, right? Uh, certainly not because the Christians didn't believe the gospel, but because they had no opportunity to preach it to Paul, because Paul was the Pharisee of the Pharisees who was trying to kill Christians, right? Trying to arrest them and take them uh, to places where they would do bad things to them, jail them, or even kill them. He was the one traveling around all the parts known where Christians were, hunting them down, bringing them to justice. And so they avoided him like the plague. Can you imagine having the courage to try to evangelize uh, Saul of Tarsus before he became Paul, right? Talk about a death wish. That's what it was, would be what it would be to try and talk to Paul, uh, Saul of Tarsus, about Jesus Christ. So if the Jews didn't preach the gospel, uh, teach the gospel to Paul, and Christians didn't teach the gospel to Paul, there's only one alternative left, right? It came directly from Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, Luke told the story about how Paul was traveling along throughout Damascus looking for Christians to arrest to bring them back to Jerusalem uh, to give them justice. And then in Acts uh, 22, uh, Luke records Paul's direct testimony uh, as he's uh, been arrested in Jerusalem and he speaks to the Jews, uh, telling them about how he was converted uh, in that time in Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 26, Paul has the opportunity to testify before King Agrippa and Festus uh, as he's brought before this, this uh, royal procession and gets to tell his story. And he tells the same story that he told in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 22, how he did everything in his power to stop the spread of Christianity until Jesus Christ did this remarkable thing in his life, revealing the gospel to him, commissioning him uh, toward uh, this, uh, this message and this uh, idea that he would preach this gospel around the world. So Paul had better authority. It didn't come from man. It came from Jesus Christ. He met Jesus personally. He was taught the gospel by Jesus, and he was sent by Jesus. Those were really strong and powerful credentials uh, that the Judaizers certainly could not match. Uh, but Paul was only getting started. That's how the gospel was revealed to him. But now uh, Paul talks about his life and his ministry and how Paul proved his authority by that. So we look at verses 13 to 24. You know, Paul proved his authority by his life and his ministry. Uh, these verses here are some of the most autobiographical verses we have on Paul's life. Uh, in these verses, he talks about his life before conversion, his life at conversion, and his life after conversion. And so as we read through these verses, I just want you all to think about uh, the value of your testimony, what your testimony ought to look like. 
it ought to look something like this, what, what Paul did here. We should be able to give our testimony in just a few sentences like Paul did here. What was my life like before uh, Jesus saved me? What did Jesus do to draw me to himself so that uh, I saw something I'd never seen before uh, and I suddenly believed? What's my life like now, now that I've been saved? What fruit am I bearing? How am I advancing the kingdom of God by making converts and making disciples? Uh, this is the formula that Paul used for his testimony, and it should be our formula as well. So let's talk about Paul before his conversion. Verses 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. So Paul argued that he had even been a better Jew than these Judaizers who were trying to corrupt the gospel and corrupt the Galatians. Uh, and in Jerusalem, or in Judaism, uh, Paul persecuted this church uh, beyond measure, right? More than anyone else ever had. Uh, he tried to destroy the church. Now, this word that Paul used for destroy means to attack uh, or to cause complete destruction, uh, to pillage, to annihilate. Uh, uh, the, the King James Version actually translates the word destroy, it translates as wasted. Uh, so Paul was wasting the church, destroying the church, uh, annihilating the church by arresting and killing Christians. Paul was a passionate guy, right? I mean, he was not uh, just, you know, casually opposed to the church, right? I mean, he was vehemently opposed to the church. With every fiber of his body, he hated the church because he thought that teaching that Jesus is God, who became a man, who lived a perfect life, died for our sins, rose from the dead, and that by faith in him, we have eternal life, he thought that was pure heresy, and that's why in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen preached this gospel, Paul voted him down, right? He gave the thumbs down and authorized the stoning of Stephen. That's one less heretic that Paul had to worry about. So because of his zeal for the Jewish law and because of his persecution of these Jesus followers, uh, Paul was advancing faster than any of his peers in Judaism. Paul was leapfrogging them and establishing himself as a kid who was going places in Judaism. He might one day become even uh, the leader of the Sanhedrin, the Council of Seventy uh, of the Jews in uh, Jerusalem. So Paul was a man with the strength of his convictions, right? Paul was never a halfway kind of guy, right? If Paul was into something, when he was in Judaism, he was all in. And then when he was a Christian, he was all in. He never held anything back. So as a Jew, he was extremely zealous for these ancestral traditions, as he calls them. These ancestral traditions are the traditions of the Pharisees. Pharisees were legalists. Uh, legalists uh, believed that they can make themselves acceptable to God through the performance of certain rites and rituals and the keeping of rules. They're trying to, 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 to strive to please God by earning their salvation through their performance. And so the Pharisees, they loved rules, right? They had the Ten Commandments, but then they had 613 other rules and regulations that they followed. And they had the case law uh, that the rabbis handed down on how they ought to proceed in certain cases that are not strictly spoken of in the Bible. And so they have all of these ancestral traditions. These are the traditions that Paul is talking about. And these are the source of his legalism. 
And so in legalism, when you become a legalist, uh, you may not notice it if it's happening to you, but, but what happens over time is that legalism, uh, the, the worship of rules and rituals, replaces the worship of God. Uh, for example, in Judaism, the, the, the performance of hand-washing rituals or fasting twice a week became more important than the worship of God. Uh, and legalism, when, when you think about the natural progression of legalism, it's always going to lead to, lead to intolerance, and it's going to lead to judgmentalism. Uh, we're going we're gonna to think of ourselves as better than other people. We're going to look down on others and say, they don't do what I do, right? We're, what I do is, is surely pleasing to God, and since they don't keep my man-made rules, uh, they are not uh, pleasing to God. So, for example, Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and they thought that was an abomination. They condemned him for it. They cared more about keeping the rule than healing the person. So legalism always results in judging others and exalting self. Uh, pride wells up as they, they keep their rules and rituals, but they ignore true religion, which is relationship with Jesus Christ. And so these Judaizers, they were false teachers. They were trying to make the Galatians keep these rules and regulations and rituals uh, rather than teaching them about the grace of God. And legalism is alive and well today, too, in our country, in our society, isn't it? Uh, Present-day examples of legalism, like as, as to salvation, might include people insisting that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, right? We would say baptism is, we ought to be baptized because of obedience to Jesus Christ and because it's a public confession of our faith, but we wouldn't make it part of the salvation experience. Uh, other people might say that speaking in tongues is necessary for salvation, and we know that speaking in tongues is not necessary for salvation. We see that uh, throughout the Bible. Uh, so we see it, legalism can, can infest the way we think about salvation, but it can also infest the way we think about how we live. Uh, legalists might carry around a tape measure, uh, measuring your skirt or measuring the length of your hair uh, to see if it fits within their personal preferences. Or they might condemn the movies that we watch or the music that we listen to or any of another other of host of things uh, based on what their preferences are. So legalists make laws out of personal preferences and then they hold everyone else to them. And so legalism is this desire to appear holy by keeping a set of rules and regulations. And as Christians, we need to know the difference between uh, the essentials of the gospel and personal preferences. We, we need to know the difference between what are the essentials of the faith and the non-essentials of the faith. The essentials of the faith are that Jesus is God, uh, born of a virgin. He took on the form of a man, was 100% God, 100% man, lived a sinless life, died for our sins, rose from the dead, and is coming again. These are the essentials. You cannot have Christianity without these essentials. Preferences, on the other hand, reflect our personal beliefs, our personal preferences about what's appropriate to wear or what media to consume or any other of a vast variety of issues that we would call perhaps gray issues, uh, issues that, that Christians can disagree about and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, so, Sadly, it's these gray issues, it's these things, these preferences that so often cause hurt feelings and cause division in the church because we hang on to these things like they're the gospel when they're not the gospel. They're just personal preferences. So we should agree to disagree on matters about which God has not clearly spoken, and we should examine, really examine, whether these, these beliefs that we hold, are they personal preferences or are they the essentials of the gospel? Uh, I'm ready to die on the hill of the essentials of Christianity, 
but I'm not ready to die on the hill of my own personal preferences, right? We need to know the difference. Well, Paul, he thought all of this was essential, right? Uh, all of the ancestral traditions. He was extremely zealous for them. He was a better Jew than any of the legalists who were insisting that the Galatians had to keep law and circumcision. And unless something happened to change Paul's course, he would have continued on passionately, zealously defending Judaism by persecuting Christians and destroying the church. But something did happen. So that's Paul's life before conversion. Now let's talk about Paul's life at conversion, verses 15 and the first half of verse 16. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And we'll stop the sentence there and talk about Paul's conversion. So in Acts 9, as we said, Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus where he was going to arrest Christians and bring them to justice. And when that happened, Paul was instantly changed. Now, in Galatians 1 here, he didn't rehash the whole story uh, that we get in Acts chapter 9, because remember, Paul had been with these Galatians for a period of time. They already knew his story. They knew his testimony. So he didn't rehash it again here. But Paul had better credentials than the, the uh, people in Judaism, and he had a more authentic conversion and calling to Christ, which he could demonstrate. And so Paul's testimony in verse 15 it just shows the sovereignty of God, right? And it reminds us of Psalm 139, where, where David said, You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it all. So David in that psalm, he's stressing the sovereignty of God. And Paul's doing the same thing here in Galatians. Uh, God claimed Paul from the womb. Paul didn't know that yet. At least he didn't know all that God had uh, laid out for his life. But God chose where Paul would be born, where he would be educated. Uh, he gave Paul a prodigious intellect and the zeal that he had for Judaism and these laws. And God doesn't waste anything, does he, right? All uh, these God-given gifts that, that Paul had so zealously used to persecute and destroy the church, these are the very gifts that God was going to use through Paul to now expand the church, to spread Christianity around the world. So God takes this very passionate man and, and redirects his life, reorients his life toward a passion for Christ. And Paul knows that he had nothing to do with his conversion, right? This was all by God's sovereign grace. I mean, Paul knew himself, right? He knew that in a million years uh, on his own, he would never come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, he would never have become a Christian unless Jesus did something to make him believe. Now, you may have a similar testimony to that. You may have been uh, perfectly happy in your life apart from God until God did something incredible in your life. Uh, that's my testimony. I have a testimony very similar to that. Uh, I was content living apart from God. I had no interest in God. Uh, God didn't blind me or knock me off a horse, at least literally speaking, but he did change me, right? He showed himself to me in a way that I had never seen before. He got my attention, drew me to himself, uh, and I would never have become a Christian otherwise. And your story, your story may be very much the same. It's all God in salvation. In fact, Paul knew he wasn't worthy of this. He said of himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor 
and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Isn't that an incredible testimony how God takes Paul, a blasphemer, uh, arrogant, ignorant, persecutor of the church, and then changes his life. Uh, this is what God does. While we, were, while we were yet enemies, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And then he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he drew us to himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he gave us this gift of faith. That's God's sovereignty. And when God saves us, he saves us from something, but he also saves us to something, right? He saves us from the wrath that we deserve for our sin and the punishment of eternity in hell. But he also saves us to something as well, right? God's got a plan for us. He's got works for us to do. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand in advance so that we would walk in them. In other words, so that we would do them. So God, in his sovereignty, saved Paul for the work that he had for Paul to do. He took a zealous legalist and made him a preacher to the Gentiles. That's just an incredible story, right? So when we think about that, applying that to our lives, what work is God calling us to do in our lives? How is God speaking to us now, uh, asking us to, to accomplish some task or, or to talk to some unbeliever about uh, the Lord Jesus? This is such a gracious God we serve, uh, not only to save us for eternal life, that we might have uh, life in eternity with Jesus Christ, but, but to give us purpose in this life, right? God has left us here for a purpose, or else when he saved us, he'd just take us right up, right? We are here because God has a reason for us being here, and that reason is uh, that we would serve God by making converts, making disciples, advancing his kingdom. So Paul's conversion and his commission confirmed his authenticity and his authority, and none of the Judaizers could match his call or match his commission, which came directly from Jesus. So what does Paul do with this call? What does he do with this conversion? Well, Paul begins to tell us in the next several verses. We're talking about now after Paul's conversion, uh, the second half of verse 16 through 20. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God, I am not lying. So more evidence that Paul could not have received the gospel from men because he didn't go up to Jerusalem uh, to learn from the apostles. Instead, Paul went away to Arabia. Now, when we hear the word Arabia, we might be thinking like Egypt, like the slide on the right, uh, Saudi Arabia down in the, in the Sinai Peninsula where Moses originally received the law. That's probably not what it means. Uh, that area of Arabia, in Paul's day, uh, the Nabataean Kingdom, which you see is just south of Damascus there on the map, uh, that was also called Arabia in Paul's day, and that's probably where Paul went, out into the Arabian desert to hear from the Lord. And he went there to study, to pray, to be alone with the Lord. And he spent three years there before finally returning to Damascus. And then he went up to Jerusalem. But even this visit to Jerusalem, uh, where he met Peter, he said he only went there to become acquainted with Peter, right? That's not to be under his tutelage. That's just to say hello, to, to meet each other, since they were both now apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And 
when you think about it, Paul had spent as much time in Arabia, three years uh, receiving revelation, preparing for ministry with the Lord, as the apostles received while Jesus walked the earth, both three-year time periods. And while the other 12 apostles had to share Jesus, right, because there were 12 of them and one of Jesus as he walked the earth in his body, uh, Paul had Jesus all to himself as he revealed himself, prepared him for ministry in that wilderness. And that's why Paul considered himself every bit the apostle uh, that Peter and any of the others were. And so when he went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter, uh, who is called Cephas here, and James, it was not for scholarship, but for friendship. And Paul was careful to tell the Galatians that he was not dependent on the apostles, but he was received and accepted by them. So that's what happens in the first few years of Paul's ministry. And then in the next few years, after that time period, uh, he, verses 21 to 24, went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. Well, after preparation for ministry in this Arabian desert, uh, Paul uh, probably began his evangelistic work in Syria and Cilicia. Uh, and that's this area here. It's north of Jerusalem. Uh, Tarsus was the capital of Cilicia, and this was Paul's hometown. That, that's where Paul was from. And so word was getting back from Cilicia, from Tarsus, back to the churches in Judea, which is down in Israel, uh, about Paul, because they didn't know him by face. They had never seen him before. And, and Paul is saying this because somebody might say, well, you must have learned the gospel then from the churches in Judea. And Paul's saying, no, I didn't learn the gospel from the churches in Judea. They didn't know me by face. I had never seen them before. They don't know me, and I don't know them. In fact, by the time uh, this news that Paul was preaching the gospel had reached these churches in Judea, uh, Paul had already been preaching it for a long time. Uh, and so this was, this was uh, Paul's evidence, more evidence that he was not taught the gospel by men, but received revelation for Christ and this from Christ. And so this news traveled fast and it caused the churches in Judea to give glory. And now these churches that once feared Paul now praised God for him. And I just find that to be absolutely amazing, just the, the amazing power of God. He took the greatest enemy that Christianity had ever known and turned him into its greatest advocate. I mean, how does God do that, right? That's just the power and wisdom of God to convert the man who is best equipped in all the world uh, to have this zeal, this passion, this knowledge, this intellect, and turn that man into the man who would be the greatest evangelist the world has ever known. And so in the second half of chapter 1, uh, Paul testified about who he was before he met Christ, uh, his conversion when he met Christ, about he, how he learned the gospel directly from Christ, and then what Paul did after he received this revelation, and how uh, God was using him to spread the gospel around the world. So Paul's pre-conversion, uh, his conversion, and his post-conversion are all covered here. It was very important to Paul because his authority, his authenticity, the very gospel is at stake. It's very important for Paul that the readers believe his testimony and accept his credentials for ministry. And so if we had Paul's resume and the Judaizer's resume in front of us, uh, and we got to interview them both, uh, we would surely be more impressed with Paul, right? He's got a better testimony. He's got a better call. He's got revelation directly from Jesus. Uh, the source of Paul's salvation and his knowledge and his authority all come from Jesus. 
And he couldn't have learned this from men, as he said, uh, because he didn't go to Jerusalem to learn from the apostles. He didn't learn it from the churches in Judea. He went to Arabia to receive instruction. And even after he went to Jerusalem, it was only to meet Peter. He had already been fully indoctrinated after years of preparation uh, from the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's challenge to the Galatians is this. Who has better authority? You've seen, you've seen us both. You've heard from us both. Who has better authority, me or these Judaizers? And I would say that round one of this heavyweight match surely goes to Paul. Uh, he wins it easily. And he'll have a lot more to say about his authority in chapter two. And so we'll cover uh, those passages in the next couple weeks. Uh, but for now, let's just close with some applications. And I'm just going to focus on the value of testimony, like the value of Paul's testimony. So the first thing I would tell you is this. Never underestimate the power of your testimony. No one can argue with your testimony, right? Your testimony is your testimony, and everyone's testimony is unique. If I asked all, however many of you are out there, how Christ drew you to him, every one of your stories would be different, and they'd all be fantastic. They'd all be amazing. Uh, don't worry if you don't have an amazing, dramatic conversion story, like you're riding a horse through the desert and God knocked you off your horse. We don't need a conversion story like that. Every conversion where God takes his enemy and, and shows him the beauty of his son and the truth of his word and turns that enemy of Christ into a believer, that's a miracle. Every single conversion is a miracle story. Uh, so Paul used his testimony to reclaim the authority that these Judaizers were trying to steal and trying to undermine. And who knows, over the course of 2,000 years, how many people have been converted and have been saved by Paul's testimony. And God can use our testimony too, can he? Uh, throughout the ages, God has used the testimony of other Christians to make new Christians and converts and disciples. That's how God does it. How gracious of God to use us in his plan to help save other people. So never underestimate the power of your, of your testimony. Second, remember that nobody is beyond God's reach. If I was going to say that anybody was beyond God's reach... I would have said it of myself. I was absolutely beyond God's reach, or so it would have seemed to me at the time. And Paul felt the same way about himself. So if Paul could be saved, if I could be saved, if you could be saved, anybody can be saved. And you know, sometimes you and I fall into the trap of, of, of thinking about a person, a friend, a family member, and thinking, you know, that, that person, they're just too far gone. You know, they're unreachable. They're, there's no way God could touch that person. Their heart is too dark, too black, too hardened for them to ever be reached by God. Uh, but then we think back about our own lives, right? And I think, man, if, if God could reach me, there is nobody who is beyond God's reach. I have people in my life, even now, even knowing my own story, that I think there's no way God could reach that person. Then I smack myself in the head and say, wait a minute, he reached you. Yes, he can reach that person too. So if we start to think that you know, anybody is beyond God's reach, that's a lie of Satan. That is a lie of Satan that anybody is beyond God's reach and we shouldn't believe it. Just keep praying, keep asking God to do a miracle. So never underestimate the power of your own testimony. Nobody is beyond God's reach. And then something you can do is to write out your testimony and tell someone. You know, if you're not prepared to give your testimony, it's really hard to give your testimony. We end up just, you know, rambling and bumbling about trying to tell our story. So we need to be prepared. We need to know what a testimony ought to look like. And we can use the same formula that Paul used in his testimony that I mentioned earlier. It's just a couple sentences. So just answer these questions. Write this down. What was I like before Jesus? What was my life like? 
then what did Jesus do? What did God do to draw me to himself? Uh, that's the second part. Then how has my life changed since he saved me? What did I look like then? And what do I look like now? What's new about me? Uh, and also, how is God using me now? What is God doing in my life? How am I bearing fruit for the kingdom? Uh, that's all a testimony is. You should be able to do that in 200 words or less. You should be able to give your testimony to somebody in no more than three minutes. Even that might be a little long. But write it out and memorize it and then try to practice it on somebody. Practice it on a friend first, then try it out on an unbeliever and see what God does. You know, God's been using Paul's testimony for 2,000 years, right? Making converts for two millennia. Who knows how he might use yours? If God has called us and if he saved us, we have his authority. It is God's given authority to us to preach the word, spread the word. He's given us a commission to go and make disciples. So if he's called us, saved us, we have his authority. Now we just have to go out and do it. And I promise you that if you do that, God will use you. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for Paul's testimony. Uh, it is such a model of what our testimony should look like. It's such an example of what, Lord, you can do uh, with the testimony of one man. Uh, Lord, Paul was your chosen instrument. You took him from uh, this incredible uh, zealot against Christianity and turned him into its greatest advocate. And we're just so thankful for that, Lord. And the message Paul preached was, was not that they should glorify Paul, but that they should glorify Jesus and worship him and put their faith in him so that they might be saved, Lord. And Lord, if there are areas in our lives where we are uh, counting more on our performance and, and the keeping of rules and rituals than we are in just faith alone, in Christ alone, Lord, I pray that you would show us, us that in our hearts, Lord, that we would not look uh, to anything that we've done and, and hope that that gives us merit toward salvation, Lord. Uh, let us see in all things that our works are just filthy rags, Lord, and, and everything it is all through Jesus Christ, Lord. He gets all the glory. He gets all the credit, and we get none. Lord, help us know the true gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And we, Lord, have just been given this gift. And I pray, Lord, that uh, we would go out from here. Use this gift that we've given, have been given by you. Use our testimony. Uh, be obedient to you, Lord, and make disciples, make converts. We pray all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.